0: Hey guys, tonight we're going to be reading from The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. Be back in a minute. Grab your popcorn and snacks. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. I hope everybody's had a great day. We're on that hump day today, halfway through our week. Well, really halfway through because everybody was off Monday. So it's kind of, you know, let me double check my sound settings here for you guys because this happened, what, a couple of a week or so ago where I wasn't on the proper sound. So let me make sure we're where we're supposed to be. Let me double check this real quick. Okay. Um, My nose is still stuffed. I still have whatever I have this crud. I'm not as congested as I was. I'm going to be going to the clinic tomorrow afternoon to double check because I am prone to pneumonia. I've had COVID in the past, but I am prone to pneumonia. I even had triple pneumonia once. That was spooky. So I'm going to make sure tomorrow. But before I go to the clinic tomorrow, I want to make an announcement here that I'm going to be guest. But I'm going to be guesting on Dr. Linda Salvin's show once more, and that will be at noon Pacific. And we're going to be talking about working in the paranormal and how it can affect your health and, and stuff. So we're going to be talking about that tomorrow. So I got a lot to say about that, but um, yeah, I'm going to be talking with her. And then right after that, I'm going to head to the clinic, which means tomorrow night, <coughs> excuse me, it's not in my chest. It's all up in my head now, which means tomorrow night. I will have a best of, I will not be here live because I don't know how long it's going to take me to go to the clinic and then obtain, obtain any medicine they want me to get. So, I'm just going to go with the best of tomorrow night, but uh, then Friday, I'll be live again with, with Medium Nancy Mass, and Monday, I'm live, and uh, we have a pet psych- We have an animal psychic coming on on Monday, so that's going to start rolling everything up. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner. i was the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal problem, or rather, if you think you have a paranormal problem, I can help you out, Okay. It might, <coughs> excuse me. Ha, huh, funny I did that and went black. That's pretty funny. It might take us a couple days, but uh, we will get out to you. And in the case it does take a couple days, we do have psychics on staff who can call you and talk to you about what may or may not be going on with your particular situation. And in most cases, they can calm the energy down before we get out there, but we will get out to see you. Okay? Just find us, either call me or check us out on Facebook under California Haunts, California Haunts Radio. California Haunts Ghostly Events, uh, our team page, if you can get to that, Um, Sacramento Sears. Check us out with those pages, okay? All right, you can also find us over on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. (coughs) See, it's more dry now. You can find us on TikTok under California Haunts. You can find us at at, uh, Twitter under California Haunts. You can find us on Twitch under Cal Haunts. If you're watching from Facebook today, and a lot of you are, please be sure to hit that follow button if you like what you see in here today. Also, you know, leave some comments. Uh, Show me some love, too. You know, put put, put some of those emoji things at the top. Thumbs up, hearts, happy faces, whatever. Because what that does is that puts us up higher in in the FYP on Facebook, and that pushes us out to more people viewing us. So I'd really appreciate that. Same thing with YouTube. If you haven't subscribed already, check out our YouTube page. We've got over 800 videos over there, all different topics. I don't like to do the same topics all the time. Some are news topics, just regular, regular old news topics. And some are cryptid, some are UFOs, some are psychics, some are all these different things. Mental health, all that stuff. I'm a journalist, photojournalist. I don't like to cover the same you know, stuff all the time. So check that out. And if you haven't done said so already, Please subscribe over at YouTube. We're trying to build our numbers up, hit that one thousand mark. So close, yet so far. Okay. Well, that being said, tonight, because I've been ill, and I'm gonna be—I'll be back in my contacts by Friday. Thank the Lord. I can't see very well to be setting up shows and sending out letters. I make lots of mistakes, so I'm reading tonight. We're, we're going to read, and plus the book—we're we're almost done with it. I think we have about 110 pages left of this book. By Sylvia Schultz, great book, lots of scary stories, lots of sad stories, but uh, we're into where we're going to be talking about Christmas ghosts, which is kind of cool, uh, Week week late, right? But we're going to be talking about that tonight with her, and it's a very interesting book, and I, I just adore this book. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like an every year kind of read thing that she opened up, it's kind of like reading, for us on this show, it's like reading The uh, Night Before Christmas, you have know, visit from St. Nicholas every year, because this is how I feel about this book. I feel so strongly about it. So we're going to continue with the read on that, and once we finish this book, uh, Anna Maria Manalo, uh, we're probably going to get one of her books, and if that doesn't happen yet because we're behind of schedule with stuff, then I will go back to that library that I've been getting those old Yuletide stories, the ones that are like 1908, because I found a lot of ghost story books in there. So, um, so uh, I'll be reading a bunch of those to you guys too to, throughout the year. So we've got all kinds of stuff to read. It's usually Sunday night we read, but There's weeks like this where I'm not feeling well, where I'm just going to read, right? So that's what we're doing tonight to read. Plus, we're trying to get this book done. Brogu's back there. He's still got his Santa Santa shirt on, but no hat. He's kind of disappointed. So we got to get him into Valentine's Day. I'll see what I can do for him for Valentine's Day. Anyway, welcome, and uh, sit back and enjoy. I'm going to take a little sip sip of my water here. And uh, I, I think I sound a little better than I have, too. See that Gro- Grogu is eating a frog. Those of you guys that watched *The Um I think I sound a little better too. You know, I'm not coughing and gagging as much as I was. Uh, it is coming up dry, but tomorrow, <clears throat> it's been it's been seven, eight days, so I <clears throat> I do want. <clears throat> it's very dry. I do want to go get checked and make sure that it's not anything else other than you know just a regular cold. So I'll be finding out tomorrow. Okay, that being said, and I am sneezing more, so that's a good sign. Let's get into this book, and uh, I think we left off at, at Christmas stories, or we're in the middle of the Christmas story section, so let me check this out. My tablet's old like me. Oh, yeah, I'm going to add to this, too. We're going to be doing this a little different this year, too. Um, You know, in addition to these shows, like I said, I want to take the show on the road to different events that are happening around the Sacramento area, and also <laughs> maybe some museums and stuff that we can go visit. But I did get a fishing license from my brother-in-law, and so I can actually take you guys fishing with me. I'm a really good, I'm a really great catfish fisherman. Night fishing, so there will be nights, maybe Friday nights or Saturday nights, where I take you guys. In addition to like taking you go hunting, <coughs> I will take you guys fishing for catfish with me. So it should be pretty fun, okay? Should be a pretty fun thing. So let me get this up. You can see my face just turned white because the AT T thing's white, okay? So I'm gonna read for about an hour, and uh, we'll take it from there. But <coughs> I'm really happy. <coughs> once, once in a while, the gu- the gu- goes in my lungs, and then. It comes right out and right now it's onto my lungs believe me I'm trained yeah Christmas hauntings believe me I've, I've been going through this for years so I know when there's stuff in my lungs and I know when it's got a pneumonia and you know all this other stuff so I don't think it's quite pneumonia yet it's probably more like bronchitis if anything so we'll see but don't be it but be sure to look up for uh, Dr Linda Salvin her show tomorrow at noon noon Pacific Christmas hauntings 639 now we'll stop at thir- 7 39 here we go billy and linda Miklos and their children billy jr and nicole live in a gorgeous 18th century farmhouse in allentown pennsylvania <coughs> they moved into the house in 1977 and discovered almost immediately that they were sharing their new home with more than one ghost let me open up the chat room real quick here remember the chat help me get my numbers up okay with more than one ghost <coughs> For several nights after they moved in, Linda and Billy were kept awake by, by the thundering hoofbeats of a horse that galloped in circles around the house. The galloping was so energetic that the couple could hear the horse's hooves kicking up gravel. But there was no gravel, and there was no horse. The house was set in deep woods, with only soft forest stuff around it. Soon after that, Linda began to hear children's voices calling, Mommy, Mommy. Billy Jr. spoke of seeing a small girl walking close to Linda. A nerd, but also intrigued, Linda did some research on the house. She traced its history all the way back to the first settler, George Schubert, a soldier in the Revolutionary War. Schubert had built a cabin on the property. The cabin later burned to the ground. Then Schubert built the farmhouse that now stands on the property. <coughs> Shortly after the house was built, oops everyone, one note just stopped. Shortly after the house was built, five of the Schubert children died of smallpox within a week. With such tragedy in its past, it's no wonder the house is a magnet for spirit energy. Linda started a diary to keep track of all the paranormal events in the house. She discovered that much of the activity happens in April and around Christmas. On Christmas Eve, 1981, eight-year-old Billy Jr. and his sister Nicole were sleeping in Billy's room with the door open. Nicole was restless and kept waking up. Suddenly, she shook Billy awake and pointed to the door. A glowing figure stood beside the door to their parents' room. As they watched, it vanished. <coughs> During another Christmas season, the has the, 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 the invited a friend of theirs, Larry, to stay with him for the holiday. Larry was a Vietnam vet who had just gone through the breakup of his marriage. The says has cut their tree and carried it home a couple of days before Christmas, and Linda felt that Larry would welcome the invitation to help decorate the tree. The weather wasn't seasonably warm, but Linda felt that a fire in the fireplace would add in the festive air. Larry decorated the tree while Billy carried in some wood and got the fire going. Linda brought in snacks for the men as they worked. When the men were finished, they all sat down to relax and to enjoy the crackling fire and the colorful tree. Someone, though, didn't seem to appreciate Larry's decorating efforts. The tree started shaking violently, and all the ornaments fell off and rolled across the floor. Billy stood up, about to give the cat holy hell for jumping on the tree, but the cat was nowhere in the room. Then the room turned icy cold. Knowing that a severe, severe drop in temperature can sometimes announce a ghostly manifestation, Billy decided to try an experiment. Linda had arranged colored balls in a sleigh as a decoration for the mantelpiece. Billy spoke to the empty air. Quote, listen, if anybody is really here, knock the balls out of the sleigh. End quote. Ten minutes later, a ball rose from the sleigh and dropped with a click on the mantle. There was a small building on the property that had been the room's quarters when the land was a horse farm. Larry had lived in the building for a while, but had moved out. He later committed suicide. Billy had lit a kerosene heater in the building to keep the pipes from freezing. On December 23, 1983, Billy was deathly sick, far too sick to get out of bed. By Christmas Day, he was feeling better. The first thing he did was go to the outbuilding to check on the kerosene heater, which, run, which would run only 24 hours on one tank. Quote, that should have been bone drying out, he said. But when he got to the building to check the heater, it was full of fuel and burning. Billy couldn't explain how the heater got filled, but he suspects maybe Larry returned to do his friend a favor. During another Christmas season, the Meeklases had a relative from Ohio come for a visit. Sometime between 1.30 and 2 a.m., Angie suddenly awoke. A loud scratching noise had pulled her from sleep. It started at the top of the stairway and grew fainter near the bottom as if a large dog was walking down the stairs. About 20 minutes later, Angie heard a crash in the kitchen as if a metal tray had fallen off the counter. A few minutes after that, Angie said she sensed a friendly presence sitting on a chair in the loft where she was trying to sleep. And according to Linda's haunting diary, on Wednesday night, December 18, 1985, She was in the bedroom, reading at 11 o'clock at night, while Billy was taking a shower in the basement. As Linda read, she heard piano music filling the house. Billy barged into the bedroom, his face half covered with shaving lotion. Tell me you were just playing the piano, Linda, he begged. She shook her head. That was the one and only time the piano played a fountain tune. It never happened again. Calvert Mansion Lord Calvert's Mansion stands in Riverdale, Maryland. It's a late Georgian plantation house that was built between 1801 and 1807. It was rumored to be haunted by Lord Calvert's son-in-law, who hanged himself from a tree in the front yard. The mansion is now a museum, but in late 1972 it was occupied by 75-year-old Mr. Smith. He was uncomfortable rattling around the haunted mansion by himself, so he asked Rick, a deputy sheriff in Prince George's County, to move in with him for protection. One December night, while Mr. Smith was out visiting friends for Christmas, Rick was outside in the barn, tending to the horses. His chores done, he started for the house and noticed that the light light in the attic was on. For a moment, he just stood and stared at the window. He knew the attic wasn't wired for electricity, but he could plainly see the rafters through the window. The light source was strong and not flickering. (laughs) It had to be coming from inside the attic. (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me. Rick's police training kicked in and he rushed into the house in search of an intruder. He secured all three of the lower floors making sure all of the house's outside doors were locked. Then he headed to the attic. Slowly <coughs> Rick pushed the attic door open only darkness met his eyes. Rick knew he had seen light in the attic less than five minutes before. There was a lamp in the attic for emergencies but the bulb was completely cold. The deputy shivered None of his police training had prepared him for seeing a bright light in an attic window. An attic without electricity. Creepy. (coughs) The Dana House. One of Frank Lloyd Wright's most famous and intriguing homes is the Dana House in Springfield, Illinois. Construction started in 1902, and that the huge house was finished in 04. It's a magnificent example of Wright's prairie style. The first of Wright's designs to feature two-story rooms like the hall the gallery and the dining room. <coughs> Frank Lloyd Wright fans and architecture enthusiasts drool over this house, which features a library with a glass fronted built in bookcases, a billiards room, and a bowling alley. I want that house. And paranormal investigators salivate because, although the management and state officials deny it, the Dana House is haunted. Very haunted. The Dana House was built at the request of Susie Lawrence. Later known as Susie. You see it, don't you? Susie Susie. I see it. Born in October 1862, Sue married Edwin Ward Dana on December 4, 1883. The marriage was short and fraught with financial troubles. Edwin Dana was a businessman, but not a very good one. Starting out as a real estate investor, Dana set himself up as president of the Western Business Agency. When that failed, his father in law sent him to Oregon to manage some mines. In Oregon, Edwin suffered a fatal accident in one of the mines. Susie came back to Springfield, her spirits in tatters. Her husband was dead, and she had also buried two infant children that she'd been unable to carry to term. On February 17, 1901, a few years after Susie's return from Oregon, her father passed away. Artie Lawrence's death was another blow to the young widow, but it left her with a financial windfall. She decided to build a grand new home for the surviving members of her family—herself, her mother, her grandmother, who would pass away a year and a half later in August, 1902, and her cousin Flora Lawrence—wanting the sophistication of a Chicago architect could bring. Okay, wanting the sophistication a Chicago architect could bring to sleepy Springfield, she tapped Frank Lloyd Wright for the job. Susie Lawrence Dana lived in a mar, lived a life marked by tragic losses, despite her elegant surroundings. She married a concert singer from Denmark in March of 1912. Jorgen Constantin Dahl was half Susie's age, so it was quite a scandal. He died a year later. In 1915, she married a native of Springfield, Charles Gurman. They eventually separated, and she divorced him in 1930. Susie had no, Susie had no head for money. In 1915, she received about $10,000 in, $10, in income from her father's rental properties, Unfortunately, she had borrowed $132,000 to, find her, to fund her lavish lifestyle. Susie turned to the spirit world for advice and consolation. She held seances in her home on a regular basis, inviting the cream of Springfield society. Maybe some of that spiritualist energy is imbued in the walls of the gracious home. Susan Lawrence passed away on February 20th, 1946, but her spirit still seems to linger in her beloved home. In life, Susie loved to throw parties. She started things off with a bang during the holiday season of 1904. The year the house was finished. She hosted lavish holiday parties. She followed those up with house for the women's club, parties for local children, including those in orphanages, dinners for residents of nursing homes, and a special gala for the families of the workers who had built the house. And apparently, Susie still loves the holidays. I spoke with Mike Anderson, a folk musician, also jovially known as the dulcimer guy. (coughs) What a great instrument, dulcimer. Mike performs for the open house held at the Dana House every December. Mike has been performing at the home for nearly 40 years and he readily admits to several chilling experiences. He claims that the house definitely has its own personality. Mike brings a unique perspective of a musician to his experiences. One of the favorite places to put a musician Is above the front door. There's a balcony there, he said. There was one year myself and a vocalist and a guitar player were doing Christmas music on that balcony. The sun was pouring through a window, and that sun was hot. The musicians' shifts were eight hours long, with the musicians playing in two to three hours since. The other two performers took a break, leaving Mike on the balcony to play solo. Suddenly, the balcony got deadly cold, to the point where I could barely move my fingers to play, and it stayed that way for about ten minutes. During another Christmas open house, one of the performers was a young young violin player, a boy about 12 or 14 years old. As the seasoned performer, Mike led the boy to the balcony where his violin music would dazzle guests that were coming. While Mike set himself up in the gallery, right? As Mike went towards the gallery, he heard the boy's panicked voice calling him back. Mike returned to the front door and looked up at the boy. The violin player peered down at him, his face a picture of, woe. I can't play here, the boy said. Why not? I don't know. The boy, a budding professional, was clearly chagrined at his own behavior. But when he mentioned that his fingers were freezing cold, Mike realized immediately what the issue was. He switched places (coughs) and sent the young violinist to the gallery instead. Mike shared another strange experience he had in the Dana house. And again, it happened regularly during Christmas open houses. Quote, The house is set up so you can pretty much tell where people are from the sound of their voices. Mike told me, he was set up to play on the balcony, and he kept an ear cocked for approaching tour groups. When a group came with an earshot of the balcony, Mike would start playing a Christmas carol on the, on the dulcimer. One day, as the tour group came up, Mike dropped into "What Child Is This." He noticed a woman walking several steps behind the tour group. She was wearing a long winter coat, in deference to the season. The group, <coughs> <coughs> the group moved on into Susie's bedroom. But the woman in the long coat stopped on the steps leading down to the bedroom, just off the balcony. From the corner of his eye, Mike saw the group go into the room, while the woman hung back. Mike turned to say to her, you need to catch up with your group. But the woman was gone. This happened several times, and each time Mike had just launched into What Child Is This? on the balcony. "'It got to where I could almost make her appear "'just by playing that particular carol,' Mike told me. "'Later, a harp player joined the ensemble of performers. "'She'd been at the house before, so Mike asked, "'Is there any place you don't want to be stationed?' "'The harp player shrugged. "'Not really, but the balcony can get pretty weird.' "'Mike nodded fervently. "'I know exactly what you mean.' "'And he told the harpist his story. "'The harpist's face paled. "'You mean, you've seen her too?' next story i am your brother rufus porter was a well-regarded journalist who lived in the pikes peak region near cascade colorado porter was known as the hard rock poet and he wrote many short poems about the human condition not fancy poetry but words that ordinary people could enjoy in december of 1960 porter was riding the rails for spokane to seattle for want of a ticket he was huddled in an open box car when the train started to cross the cascade mountains the temperature already already brutally cold fell to below zero. Porter knew he couldn't survive much longer. Near Leavenworth, Washington, he caught a glimpse of a work camp. He jumped the train and headed painfully towards the camp to seek shelter. He made his way to the watchman's cabin, where a light burned a cheerful welcome in the window. With the last of his fading strength, Porter pounded on the door. An older bearded man with kind eyes opened the door. He ushered Porter into the cabin out of the bitter cold. He sat him down next to the fire, knelt before him, and slipped his cold boots off. He fed Porter and treated his frostbite. But when Porter tried to thank him or engage him in conversation, the man would only reply with one simple phrase, I am your brother. After a night spent in a warm, comfortable bed, Porter left the work camp and made his way to Leavenworth. When he got to town, he told his story of being rescued by the watchman and of being invited into the warmth and safety of the cozy cabin. Porter's tale was met with sideways looks and outright denial. The work camp outside the town had been deserted for years, people told him, and the washman, who had supposedly cared for him, was long dead. Porter refused to believe this. The man's glances of ki- glasses of kindness, his generous care, the humble way <coughs> in which he would say, I'm your brother, an old state planted firmly in Porter's mind. He decided to go to the work camp in daylight to see things for himself. He found the camp abandoned. Just as the men in town had told him. There was no sign of life anywhere in the camp, and the ashes of the fire on the hearth of the watchman's cabin were cold and dead. Wow. Let me uh, do this real quick. Uh, you can tell my voice is a lot stronger today than it was yesterday. Every day's improvement, it's just taking forever. But uh, I'd rather have it do that than be in my lungs. <coughs> Next one, The Thing at the Foot of the Bed. Just like superheroes, all paranormal researchers have their own origin story. The event that launched them on their careers as investigators of the unknown. Author Stephen Lancaster came to his first supernatural experience earlier than most. He was just 10 years old when he was attacked by an invisible entity in his bed. Lancaster remembers the date vividly. It was December 14, 1987 and he was living in a small town in western Maryland with his parents and younger brother. The family had moved several months before. Stephen recalls that that Christmas was to be their first in the new house. As the older kid, his little brother was just five, Stephen per- felt perfectly justified in claiming the top bed of the bunk bed set when the family moved in. <clears throat> the boys' bedroom was chilly at night. The house was heated by a cold furnace, and its warmth struggled... <coughs> reached the second floor. Up on the top bunk, it was even chillier, but it was worth it to Stephen to have the prize spot. One night on the night of December, sorry, on the night of December 14th, the boys had gone to bed at nine o'clock, but of course going to bed and going to sleep mean two very different things in kidspeak. Stephen and his brother horsed around for a while, keeping quiet to stay off parent radar. After a couple of hours of covert play, Stephen's little brother was ready to actually go to sleep. He dropped off almost immediately. Stephen, on the other hand, lay awake for a while, tossing and turning in the chilly room. Around one in the morning, Stephen clocked out too. He came fuzzily awake to something pulling on his ankles. He couldn't see much in the dark room, but something was tentatively grasping his ankles and pulling gently. Of course, Stephen assumed it was his little brother. Stephen hung his head over the side, top, the side of the top buck, peering down at the bottom buck. His brother looked like he was sound asleep. Stephen shook his head. Leave it to a pesky little brother to try a trick like that. He snuggled back down into his warm nest and closed his eyes. He had almost dozed off when he felt another tug on his ankles. This one was harder. Again, Stephen poked his head over the bed rail, hoping to catch his brother diving under his own blankets with a muffled giggle. And again, he heard nothing, and his brother looked into the world. At that point, it occurred to Stephen that his brother might not be the one responsible for the ankle tugging. His sleep fuzz brain was waking up, and he was beginning to realize that it was virtually impossible for his brother to invade Stephen's domain, give him a tug on the ankle, then slip back under his covers undetected, and pretend so convincingly to be fast asleep. As Stephen was mulling over this puzzle, he realis- realized that some invisible something was slowly pulling his blanket towards the foot of the bed. He reached for his blanket to pull it back, and something grabbed both of his wrists. Imagine someone grabbing you around the wrist. You know what it feels like. This felt exactly like that. Something was holding on to me and not letting go. The skin around my wrist was actually indented, as if someone were physically grabbing me. Stephen would write much later in his book, True Case Files on the Paranormal Investigator. It's a straightforward description of stark Terror. <laughs> the unseen entity had a hold of Stephen, and whatever it was had no intention of letting him go. Within moments... Stephen felt weak, drained of energy. And the entity was still pulling him down to the foot of the bed. Moments before, Stephen had sat upright to reach for the retreating blankets. Now the phantom yanked him forward, flipping him so that his feet were on the pillow, and still he was tugged, pulled relentlessly towards the foot of the bed. Stephen tried to drag in a breath, scream, but it was like trying to yell in a dream. Instead of a full-throated holler for help, Stephen's cries of "Mom, Dad." came in thin whistling gasps, And yet he still struggled, fighting with wiry kid strength against the invisible monster that held him in his clutches. Suddenly, Stephen broke free. He had been tugging so hard, he overbalanced and crashed into the wall. The back of his head hit the wall so hard it left a dent in the wood paneling. Stephen found his voice. Mom! His parents came running. His little brother was roused from sleep. Everyone piled into the room as Stephen stammered out his incredible story. Despite the evidence of the head size dead in the wall, Stephen's parents wrote the story off as an amazingly vivid nightmare. <coughs> Excuse me. The boys were soothed back to sleep, but a paranormal investigator was born that terrifying night. There is an interesting postscript to this story. In 1987, Stephen's parents both dismissed, both dismissed his tale. Theirs was a Christian home, and such talk was discouraged. But many years later, Stephen was talking with his mother about that long ago night, and she decided to share a secret with him. When Stephen's mother was, herself, ten years old. The exact same thing had happened to her. Her encounter with the invisible entity was so violent, it left physical marks on her wrists, where she was pulled towards the foot of her bed. Okay. The Mystery of St. Luke's Church (coughs) This story happened in Liverpool, England in the early 1990s and has never been explained. The story begins one foggy December evening in 1991. <laughs> okay. On the evening of December 20th at 7 p.m., the Edwards family of Dovecott decided to do a bit of late Christmas shopping in Liverpool City Center. Mr. Edwards drove his wife of four children to town in his old Volvo estate. Many people had similar plans for the evening and finding a place to park was a chore. Mr. Edwards trolled the streets looking for a parking spot, while his daughter and three sons, too excited to fuss, watched the spectacular Christmas decorations slide by the car windows. Abby, the youngest of six years old, was especially entranced with the colorful lights. As Mr. Edwards grumbled about parking, Mrs. Edwards pointed to a secluded side street called Bull Place. <coughs> That's perfect, Mr. Edwards said. He turned and drove up the poorly lit cobblestone road, which ran past the back of St. Luke's Church. As soon as the car was parked, the kids jumped out of the vehicle, bubbling with excitement. Meanwhile, the icy fog began to roll down the street. The family (coughs) was about to start off for the shops, when Mr. Edwards suddenly stopped short and glanced around the short street. Where's Abby? Everyone looked around. Mr. Edwards peered in the windows of the car, but his little daughter hadn't lagged behind. There was, a ter- there was a tremble in Mr. Edwards' voice. Where is she? The three boys looked around, but there was no one else in the street. Then they all heard faint vo- a faint voice scream out in the distance, Daddy! The voice sounded like Abby's. It seemed to come from the end of the lane where Bull placed at Roscoe Street. The Edwards family rushed up the cobble road, but Mr. Edwards leaned the way. Abby, he shouted, where are you? <coughs> the gates at the back of St. Luke's were opened and Mr. Edwards figured that Abby had wandered through the gate and onto the grounds of the old church. He hurried into the churchyard, followed closely by his wife and their sons, and again they heard Abby call out for her daddy, but the little girl was nowhere to be found, and the fog was getting thicker by the minute. Mr. Edwards didn't want to say this in front of his family, but he was beginning to wonder if some stranger had grabbed Abby and taken her into the ruins of the old church. He handed his wife the car keys and told her to get a flashlight from the vehicle. When Mrs. Edwards came back, Mr. Edwards climbed up onto the ledge of the church window and shone the light into the deserted church. The interior was in ruins, and nothing but rubble scattered around. Mr. Edwards knew (coughs) that the church of St. Luke had been gutted by a bomb in World War II during the blitz. Only the shell of the building had survived. The church had been left in that condition as a reminder of the horror of war. Even though it was in ruins, though, Mr. Edwards couldn't shake the thought that Abby's voice had been calling for help from inside the church. As he clambered down from the window ledge, Mr. Edwards said, Listen, the faint eerie sounds of organ music drifted through the open window. The family went to the police station and told the desk sergeant about their lost child. The sergeant alerted all the patrol cars in the area and told the officers of the city center... (coughs) to be on the lookout for the young girl. The family then rushed back to Bull Place to keep looking for Abby. <coughs> Excuse me. They searched the grounds of St. Luke's once again and found nothing. They were about to go to the car to warm up when something happened that continues to puzzle the Edwards family to this day. A tall man, wearing a top hat and a long black coat, came out of the grounds of St. Luke's and walking with him, holding his hand, was little Abby. When Abby saw her parents, she ran to them <coughs> sorry, and started to cry as her father picked her up. The sinister man in black looked like something out of the Victorian age. He had long bushy sideburns, a pallid face, and staring ink black eyes. He stood outside the gates of the churchyard and said in a low creepy voice, Quote, Please accept my sincere apology for any distress caused. Then he turned <coughs> and walked slowly back towards the rear of the ruined church. As as a police car came tearing down the road, and Mr. Edwards told the officers about the stranger, who had just returned his daughter. Three police officers bolted from their car and rushed into the church, but the police found no one. The church was empty. More police came. The grounds were searched with powerful flashlights, but the place was deserted. Some of the officers also heard the faint sounds of organ music, but they never could find out where the mysterious music was coming from. One of the policemen asked Abby where she'd been, and that's when things got really weird. Abby said that an old woman in a shawl had grabbed her and dragged her into the church, where a mass was being held. There were many people dressed in old-fashioned clothes. The the women wore big hats, and the men were all dressed in black. Abby had screamed for her father, but the old woman had put her hand over the girl's mouth to keep her quiet. Some time later, a tall man had come into the church and pulled Abby from the woman's clutches. He had been the man who had taken Abby back to her parents. The intrigued policeman continued to interrogate the little girl, and he asked her if the man had spoken to her about what had happened. Abby shook her head, then said, The man said he had been a long time dead. That's all. Well, that's just creepy, isn't it? <clears throat> My whole shudder ran up everyone's spine when they heard Abby's reply. such a strange incident. Strange incident, the Edwards family refuses to go anywhere near that church, especially during the Christmas season. The Gutenberg poltergeist. On December 17th, I want to check something really quick, you guys. Hang on. Hang on one second. Let me do a quick check for messages. Okay. Just want to make sure the audio is working tonight because I've been having audio issues where it says it's working and then it's not. Okay. One more. Hopefully by Friday I'll be rid of the stupid cold. Okay, here we go. On December 17th, 1959, a William Mayer house near Gutenberg, Iowa, was the scene of excitement. That had nothing to do with the upcoming holidays. A poltergeist took over the house, and soon no one in the family was in the Christmas spirit. One evening, as the Myers were sitting in their living room, a crash thundered through the house. The couple raced into the kitchen, where the source of the bang was immediately apparent. They found the refrigerator tipped over. As they watched, horror struck, a flower stand flew across the room and exploded against the stove. Movement near a basket of eggs on the windowsill caught their eye next. One egg lifted out of the basket, floated across the room, and smashed itself on the kitchen door. The mares were dumbfounded. Mrs. Mare was terrified. The inexplicable was in their home, in their kitchen, the heart of the home. What on earth was going on? The mares hadn't had supper yet, but Mrs. Mare was far too upset to cook in their kitchen. The couple went out to eat instead. (coughs) Out of the house, among the chatter of the other diners, The mares could almost forget the high strangeness of earlier. Mrs. Mare felt herself relaxing. Surely there was some rational explanation for what had happened. When they got home, the mares got ready for bed. It had been a sorely trying trying evening, and all they wanted to do was go to sleep and try to forget the destruction of the kitchen. Mrs. Mare got a glass of water and put it on the nightstand. Then she got into bed and reached for a book. A little light reading would relax her. There would be no relaxing reading that night. The glass rose from the nightstand and hovered over Mrs. Mayer's head as her husband watched in horror. Then the glass was squeezed in a powerful, invisible hand. It exploded, drenching her with water and shards of glass. (coughs) Mrs. Mayer screamed. Her husband, Bill, just as terrified, insisted they move to the guest room. Mrs. Mayer dried herself off and they moved to the other bedroom. They scooted under the covers like like children frightened of the boogeyman. But before Bill could even turn off the light, Mrs. Mayor shrieked again. Little black specks were appearing on the blanket. The mirrors looked up mystified. Soot was falling on them from the ceiling, appearing out of nowhere to shower the bed with black grit. In the morning, Bill called the sheriff, who came out to the house to investigate. He was called away in the middle of a search, but he promised to come back. When the sheriff did come back, several hours later, the mayor met him on the front lawn. They'd been spooked yet again. The sheriff hadn't witnessed any activity during his walk through the house, but after he left, several chairs had skated across the floor. Even stranger, every single window in the house had cracked. But the mayor's hadn't heard any sounds of breaking glass. That was the most excitement Clayton in Clayton County. This was the most excitement Clayton County, Iowa had seen in decades. People from Gutenberg and other tales started to show up unannounced at the mayor's home, searching for ghosts. One of these visitors was a Mississippi River towboat captain who came with some friends to investigate the strange tales. He admitted to the mayor that he didn't believe in ghosts. Mrs. Mayor, a gracious hostess despite her supernatural troubles, offered the men the use of the guest room for the night. The captain turned in. While his friends stayed in the kitchen with the mayor drinking coffee and, get, and getting beer acquainted, a ruckus in the bedroom brought the group running. The befuddled captain was still lying on the mattress. The mattress, however, was on the floor, eight feet away from the bed frame. After a few months of poltergeist activity, Bill Bear and his wife had, quite enough, had had quite enough. They moved away, leaving the house empty. Curious, the curiosity seekers and amateur ghost hunters made the abandoned house their haunt for a while. The Mares eventually sold the house to their former neighbors, the Finnegan's. To combat the vandals that had started using the house as a playground, Wallace Wallace Finnegan turned the house into a barn, now filled with hay instead of ghosts. The house lost much of its spooky appeal. The vandals finally left it alone. That's cool. The Tickling Terror Bill Plummer snuggled the covers up under his chin. He was finding it hard to fall asleep on that December night, 1939. He sighed, then turned over. Suddenly, excuse me, my nose, like I said, my nose is stuffed. <coughs> I apologize. Suddenly, he jerked. It felt like his wife, Gert, was tickling his feet. Startled, he yelled out, Hey, knock it off. A sleepy mumble in his ears. Billy looked over at Gert, who was just waking up out of a sound sleep. Then her eyes widened, she twitched away from him. Billy, gosh, stop. That's mean. I hate being tickled. Gert, I didn't do, there, Billy squirmed. I said, stop. I didn't touch you. I've been asleep. Then Gert made a face and clambered on the bed. If you didn't touch me, I didn't touch you. We need to check the bed for bugs. Billy sprang out of bed at the mention of bugs and swished on the light. Together, Billy and Gert stripped the bed. Sheets, pillowcases, even the mattress pad, landed on the floor after a good shaking. No bugs, thank goodness, Gert said. Two pairs of hands made short work at putting the bed back together. The couple lay down, their fears calmed, to enjoy the peaceful night's sleep. They got no such thing. The invisible entity tickled them unmercifully. The plumbers giggled, cried, moaned, squirmed, pleaded. Eventually, the entity relented and allowed the exhausted couple a few hours sleep. At four o'clock in the morning, a thump rattled the bed frame, jerking Billy and Gert from an uneasy doze. Billy slapped the light switch, but no one was in the room with them. At least, no one they could see. A symphony of taps, rattles, and bangs played up and down the bed frame. For months, the strange nocturnal noises continued. One night in February, a deep voice came from somewhere underneath the bed. Is the baby asleep? (coughs) Gert shot from the bed into the baby's room. To her immediate relief, the the, other infant son was sound asleep. In mid-March, Billy decided to try an experiment. He twisted a copper wire into one of the bed springs and ran it to a gas pipe in the kitchen. That night, for the first time in months, the plumbers slept peacefully. They woke the next morning refreshed and rested. The next night, the tickling and thumping was back in full force. Billy had had enough, so it girt. On the first warm spring day, Billy took the bed apart and hauled it off to the Wichita dump. A new bed was a small price to pay for a good night's sleep. All right. Next, we have the perfect Christmas tree. Mr. and Mrs. Hotstetler had been out all that winter's day. They'd been on the hunt for the perfect Christmas tree. Mr. Hotstetler did us Well, if it were up to him, he'd have gotten one picked out in an hour, maybe less. A tree was a tree, as long as it looked okay. But the missus, she was mighty picky about some things. And today, she was being almighty picky about her tree. This one was too tall, that one too short. The one here, this one over here, was, was already dropping needles. For heaven's sake, that one, oh that one, just wasn't full enough. None of the trees would do it all. Dennis was getting hungry, which was making him cranky. Truth be told, it was his wife's particularness making him cranky. But he loved his wife and wanted to see her happy. So he put up with it. He did manage to convince her that they should give up the search the perfect christmas tree just for that afternoon they could go out later even the next day but miracle of miracles as they drove home the wife spotted it there it was the perfect christmas tree <coughs> there was just one problem with it it was right smack in the middle of a cemetery growing right out of a grave but it was the perfect tree the wife insisted dennis couldn't believe She was asking, truly honestly telling him to cut a tree down in the cemetery. But the wife just had to have it. After all, it was the perfect Christmas tree. So grumbling the whole way, Dennis tromped into the cemetery, hacked Swish hacked the tree down, dragged it out of the cemetery, and Push pulled it on top of the car and tied it down. There. He got in the car and started it, already thinking of a hot bowl of soup at home. The road home was a winding county road, coming around especially tricky curve, the couple saw something strange. There was a man standing beside an old-fashioned horse and buggy, sort of halfway in the road. Dennis hit the brakes, and they made their way around the fellow blocking the road. Just as they got past him, though, man, horse, and buggy all vanished. Well, of course that was very strange, but they didn't stop to investigate. But just before they reached home, they saw the horse and buggy again, with the man glaring at them. This time, they saw it on a ridge, silhouetted against the afternoon sky. They blinked, and it was gone. When they got home, the husband untied the tree, brought it in, set it up in the stand, and gave it a good healthy drink of water for its trunk. Then he trudged off to the kitchen to find something to eat. The wife was over the moon with her perfect Christmas tree. <coughs> she dragged out all the boxes of decorations and set about trimming the tree. She put on strings of lights and garland and took out all her favorite ornaments reliving fond memories of Christmas' past as she went. It didn't take long. It didn't take a terribly long time to decorate the tree, and soon she stepped back to admire her work. That's when she saw it. An ornament she certainly hadn't put there. <coughs> Excuse me. Something near the top of her perfect Christmas tree. A small ornament in the shape of a man and a horse and buggy. The woman shrieked with horror for her husband to come take a look. They both peered at the ornament and realized, both together, that the man looked an awful lot like the fellow they'd seen twice on their way home. They got the funny feeling, looking at the tiny man, that he wanted to talk. His wife, her voice quavering, asked him what he wanted, and the little man told him. In life, he'd been a selfish, horrible horrible man, and only one thing he'd ever done right in his life was to cut down pine trees and give them to folks for Christmas but that hadn't been enough to save him from the thought of hellfire and damnation for the other bad parts of his life. Many years before, he'd been killed in a buggy crash. he lived just long enough to breathe his last instructions to his family. They must plant a pine tree on his grave. The tree would symbolize his generous acts, and so he'd eventually work his way into heaven. The day he was buried, the family honored his last wish and planted a seedling pine on his grave. Over the years, he had grown tall and strong, and had grown into the perfect Christmas tree. And then, after all this time, all those years of the tree growing, all those years of the man hoping to get into heaven at last, after all that, this selfish, ignorant, uncaring woman had come along and stolen his tree. A tree that, in life, he would willingly have cut down and given to her. She had cut down his special tree. There would be no forgiveness for such crime. Strangely enough, the man didn't blame the husband, who had actually been the one to cut the tree down. He knew it was the wife's doing. The little man's voice grew fainter as he spoke, as if he were on the verge of leaving. He blamed her one last time for destroying his hope of getting into heaven. The last thing the little man told her was that the wife would suffer for the rest of her life for her thoughtlessness and disrespect. But, he added, a grim note in his voice, she wouldn't have to suffer for long. When the pine tree was dead, she too would die. The Little man's prophecy came true. Despite their best efforts to keep the tree alive, it died. And a month to the day after the tree was da- was cut. So did the wife. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. A rose for her hair. In September 1908, the Harold family moved into a big three-story mansion in Norfolk, Virginia. Son, Eddie, an only child, was given the bedroom on the third floor at the front of the house. But as he was away in a private school, he didn't use the room right away. Another third-floor room, the one down the hallway from Eddie's, was a sign of the family's two servants to share. But very soon, after they moved in, both servants came to Mrs. Harrell and asked me to move to a different room. Something felt wrong in that room, they said. Strange noises, <coughs> unintelligible conversations, just below a whisper, furniture moving by itself. Mrs. Harrell told the servants they were just being foolish. But being kind and considerate employer she soon relented and let them move out of the haunted room. They had no problems in their new quarters. Eddie Harold came home for his holiday break a week before Christmas. He settled into his room and slept there peacefully until New Year's Eve. That night, Eddie was woken during the night by the overhead light turning on by itself. Gradually, he opened his eyes and saw a young woman standing next to the window. She was beautiful dressed in white, with a brilliant red rose tucked into, tucked into her black hair. One hand was at her temple, as if to shield her eyes from the light. Still half asleep, Eddie mumbled to the girl and asked what she wanted. At the sound of his voice, the girl vanished, and the lights went out. At breakfast the next morning, <coughs> Eddie told his parents what had happened. Mr. and Mrs. Harold passed the experience off as a dream, but too nonchalantly asked Eddie not to mention the dream of the servants. At Easter, the heralds had outtailed out guest visiting. While sitting at breakfast, the friend happened to glance out of the hallway and saw a young lady in white pass by the open hall door and go up the stairs. The friend was able to describe the lady quite clearly. She was wearing a dress of white lace with capless sleeves and a train, and she wore a single red rose in her shining black hair. Later that night, Eddie saw the ghost for a second time. This time, he managed to ask the young lady She was and what she wanted. The spirit again vanished, but the same instant he heard a woman's voice urge, Wait. After that, the apparition was only seen at the Christmas holidays. The last time anyone saw the pretty ghost was during Eddie's senior year. Family was visiting for the holidays, and Eddie's cousin was supposed to sleep in the servant's old room. But during the holiday party, the men of the family had used it as their smoking room. So Mrs. Harold decided to put the cousin in Eddie's bedroom instead. Eddie agreed to sleep in the room the servants so feared. The heralds decided not to tell the cousin about the ghost in Eddie's room, hoping she'd sleep soundly. Eddie, as agreed, went to sleep in the servant's old room down the hall. He fell asleep without incident, but once again he was woken up in the middle of the night by the overhead lights coming on, and once again he saw the young woman in white lace standing by the window. This time, her hands were over her face. Eddie quietly got out of bed, but as soon as his feet hit the floor, she was gone. After he had another visit from the beautiful young ghost, Eddie couldn't sleep. He sat up in his chair and read for a while. He nodded off over the book and slept through the rest of the night in the chair. At breakfast, the cousin told the heralds about a strange vision she'd had that night. She woke up to find her overhead light on. She could see through the walls that separated her room from the one Eddie was using. You were in your nightshirt, and you were sitting in a chair with the book in your hands. There was a woman in white standing behind you as if she was reading over your shoulder. The cousin described the woman exactly the way the Easter guest had done years before. The rose fell out of her hair, the cousin added. It was lying on the floor by the chair. And then the whole scene vanished. After breakfast, Eddie and his father stuck upstairs in the room where Eddie had spent the night. On the floor next to the chair was a fresh-cut red rose. Shortly after this, Mr. Harrell passed away unexpectedly, and the family moved out of the house. Eddie he never found out who the young lady was or why she had appeared to him. But he kept the rose in a bell jar. Let's see if I'm, sure I'm right. Yeah, in a bell jar. He wrote that half a century later, the stem and the leaves had withered, but the blossom which had had, was as fresh as it had, as if it had been cut that day, instead of being dropped by a ghost 50 years before. He never removed the last cover or even thought of touching the rose's petals for fear it would crumble to the dust. <laughs> All right, eternal. Love. <laughs> wow. Okay, I'm sorry, guys. It's just it's cold. as doesn't want to go. Eternal love. Jubal Reeves was a mountain man, and he had a mountain-sized heart too. He was the friendliest, kindest man of any one of those hills and hollers. Jubal was always ready to lend his neighbors a helping hand, but he saved his truest devotion for his family. His beautiful wife Rebecca and their four children, the little ones. Raised from ten years old down to three-year-old down to three-year-old baby, there were two girls, Hannah and Sarah, and two boys, Laban and David. Laban and David. Jubal donated on his children and their mother. He was constantly doing little things to show his affection for them. He dug flower beds for Rebecca around their cabin, and filled them with the colors of nature, and picked bouquets for her every new, every time a new blossom opened. He carved little toys for the children from chunks of wood, smoothing the splinters and rough edges carefully, mindful of tender little hands. He hung swings on the trees so the children would have a lovely place to play. Whenever he made a trip down to the general store for supplies, he made sure to pick something up for his family, penny candy for the children and a bolt of cloth for Rebecca. She was an excellent seamstress and took pride in keeping her growing family well clothed. And when they attended Sunday services in their small mountain church, Jubal would sit, eyes closed, a smile on his face as he listened to Rebecca lift her voice in worshipful song, as if he were hearing angels sing. Jubal and Rebecca had been married for about 12 years when tragedy came to the family. During an exceptionally cold winter, influences struck the mountain community. Jubal and Rebecca nursed other families until the evening they came home and found their own children sick. Little David, the baby of the family, died before morning the next day. Rebecca fell ill about and about the same about the time they lost David. Ten-year-old Hannah passed next. Rebecca lived long enough to know that Hannah had died before she herself passed away. Left without his partner or soulmate, Jubal tried to keep six-year-old Sarah and eight-year-old Levin alive, but the strain of the grief and loss was too much for him, and he took sick as well. By the time the doctor came, Sarah and Levin were gone, and Jubal was delirious of fever. Jubal lay in a coma for a week before his fever broke. During that time, his neighbors did what folks back then did for each other. They took care of the laying out and the burying of Jubal's loved ones. But Jubal was far too sick to say his final goodbyes. It was another few days before Jubal was well enough to open his eyes and ask about Rebecca and the children. As gently as they could, the neighbors broke the shattering news. Rebecca, Hannah, Lemon, Sarah, and David were all dead, buried in the yard near one of the flower beds Jubal had put in for his wife's enjoyment. Jubal didn't refuse, didn't believe them. He refused to believe them. The doctor pronounced Jubal out of out of danger. The neighbors went home, their sad duty done. If Jubal lived alone in the cabin for for a while, they figured he would, in time, come to accept the loss. But it was not easy as that. That spring, Jubal Reeves came down from the cabin to the general store. He was still very weak and deathly pale, but he was determined to make the trip to the store. His reason for it became clear when he asked the storekeeper for five yards of gingham cloth. Rebecca wants to make new spring dresses for the girls, Jubal told the astonished storekeeper. They're just growing like weeds, and best throw in some stick candy for the little ones, too. The storekeeper, startled, asked Jubal if he really wanted all that, after what had happened. Jubal gave the man a puzzled look in return, as if he honestly had no idea what the man was talking about. The storekeeper didn't have the heart to try and explain. In the end, he just sold Ju- Jubal the cloth and the candy along with his other supplies. As time went on, Jubal became even more fixed in his delusion. Occasionally, some neighbor would try to convince him that Rebecca and the children were waiting for him in heaven. But Jubal would never listen to such talk. He lived as if Rebecca and the, and the children were right there with him, and they were, living in their li- they were living their lives together as a family. He'd wash clothes and hang them to dry. he cooked for a family of six. He'd set the table for the meal, then wash all the dishes afterward. And once a year, he'd ask a neighbor woman to sew new dresses for Rebecca, Sarah, and Hannah, but always in the sizes they'd been when they died. The neighbor woman was kind and patient, and she faithfully made the dresses that Jubal asked. Many years later, when Jubal was old and feeble, a stranger happened to pass by the cabin. It was Christmas time, and the stranger was on his way to a nearby home, and he had directions. He knocked on the door and Jubal let him in. The cabin was brightly lit and freshly cleaned for the holidays. The stranger could see that Jubal was in the middle of setting the table for six. The cabin was festively decorated and the good smells of cooking filled the air. Jubal was dressed in clean clothes, ready for the holiday celebration. He gave the strangers the direction he needed and the man went his way. The stranger passed by Jubal's cabin on his way down the mountain a couple hours later. He was about to knock on the door. He thought he might wish the old man a Merry Christmas and maybe warm himself at Jubal's fire for a bit, but something stopped him. He could hear voices in the cabin the giggles of young children, Jubal's happy voice as he played with them. Then a woman's voice, the most beautiful he'd ever heard, came to his ears. She was singing an old mountain carol, and it sounded like angel singing. The stranger decided not to interrupt such a cozy family gathering. So he let his hand fall and turned away. He rode back down the mountain. It was some time later that he heard the story of Jubal's losses and of his insistence that his family still lived. That was Jubal's last Christmas with his family. He died at the end of summer of the next year, just when the leaves began to turn. His neighbors found him sitting in a chair near, near Rebecca's flower beds. They buried him with his family right there in the yard. Mountain legends say that maybe Jubal's devotion to his family was so strong that it brought them back from beyond the veil. To spend that one last Christmas with him. And when the mountain folk want want to pay someone the very highest compliment, they say they have the love like the love of Jubal Reeves. Cool. Guides in the snow. It was just a couple of days before Christmas, 1860. Dr. John O'Brien, a county doctor practicing in rural Missouri, had just sat down to suffer with his wife supper. <laughs> Not supper. <so. sighs> With his wife Elizabeth. The meal Elizabeth had made was perfect for a cold, blistery winter's night. Hot fried chicken, buttery mashed potatoes, and bread fresh out of the oven. But Dr. O'Brien could only pick on his food. The young doctor was famous in the area for his intuition, a sense that went far beyond duty to his patients. And that intuition was, was nibbling at him right now, telling him to visit one of his patients. Mrs. Kilpatrick had heart trouble and if she wasn't distressed, Kara couldn't wait until morning. O'Brien set his fork down and explained to Elizabeth that he had to go see his patient. Elizabeth nodded her understanding, but cast a worried glance at the snow spinning against the window. O'Brien dressed warmly for the ride, but even so, the blizzard's winds swirled fiercely around him, cold fingers seeking a way into his heavy overcoat and under his thick wooden scarf. Well, scarf. He made his way to the stable, and his sturdy horse to the buggy. The howling winds and driving snow hit him full force when he turned out of his lane and onto the road. O'Brien gripped the reins with his fur-lined gloves and urged the horse forward, praying for the beast that the beast could keep his footing on the slippery road. The familiar landmarks were buried under just snow. O'Brien peered through the swirling flakes, trying to see the turn he had to take to get to the zigzag path of the Kilpatrick's house. His sense of duty to his patient throbbed, but the storm raged fiercely around it. If he took the wrong road, he'd be wandering the countryside for hours in the cold and dark. Should he just give up and head for home? Just then, he heard a noise under the howl of the wind. It sounded like the barking of a dog, a big dog. No, not just one, but there were two of them. Then, in the shallow pool, of yellow light cast by the buggy lantern. O'Brien saw them. There were two big black dogs, God only knew what breed, one on each side of his horse. The horse started and snapped, stamped, but didn't bolt from the huge beasts. The dogs barked again and bounded off through the snow, their shaggy black bodies easy to see as they moved through the white drifts. They must belong with some family around here, O'Brien thought, as he touched the horses into a fast walk. He didn't remember the Kilpatrick's having big dogs like these, but maybe... They were working animals, not allowed indoors. The dogs kept up their barking, looking back over their shoulders, almost as if they were making sure O'Brien was following them. The doctor decided to trust his intuition once again, and he followed the two big black dogs. <coughs> the dogs waited for the buggy to catch up, leading, a horse the, leading, horse, leading the horse down the winding road to, to Kilpatrick's home. O'Brien doubted he would have found the turnoff without the dog's help. Finally, a light glimmered in the distance and the doctor allowed himself a sigh of relief. Moments later, he recognized the house, Kilpatrick's house. He pulled up, parked his buggy in the shed with a pat for his faithful horse, and went up and knocked on the door. Mr. Kilpatrick opened the door. Dr. O'Brien, what on earth? The doctor shrugged out of his snow-crusted overcoat. I had a feeling, that's all. How was the missus? Not well, I'm afraid. That intuition of yours is sure a blessing. We owe you thanks for coming out on such a vicious night. The doctor warmed his hands briefly at the fire, then went in to see his patient. As her husband had said, Mrs. Kilpatrick was doing poorly. Her breathing was labored, and her color wasn't good. O'Brien reached for her wrist and felt for her pulse. Thank God you're here, doctor, the woman said. I had the strangest dream about you, dreaming you were driving in a storm with two great black beasts at your side. Her voice trailed off as O'Brien stared at her num- numbly. He noted her low three false. He turned to his bag and rummaged through it, looking for the packet of heart medicine. He mixed it in water and eased his patient up to drink it. Soon, her breathing eased. Her pulse grew steady as she drifted into sleep. It was then that O'Brien realized that he hadn't heard the dog's bark in some time. As he gratefully accepted a late meal from Mr. Kilpatrick. O'Brien asked him about the dogs. The man shrugged. He didn't own dogs like that, nor did anyone in the area. The doctor spent the night watching over his patient. The next morning, Christmas Eve, she was well out of danger. As O'Brien drove home, he kept a sharp watch for the big black dogs. He even whistled and shouted for them a few times. But they had vanished with the blizzard twins. He never saw the dogs again. All right. Should we read one more? We've got like three minutes. Whoop, well, never got, nope, we're done. Two more minutes. So we're going to continue Sunday. And I'll have to figure out. Yeah. So there's another half hour left of this chapter. So I'll have to figure out where we're at. But that's going to do it. So at least we know on Sunday, we have at least 30 minutes left in the book, if not more. Okay, well, I want to thank everybody for coming. I know it was hard because of my coughing. I was coughing every so often, but I saw you guys popping in and out of the room, so thank you very much for coming. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here. Hello, Pamela. I can see Pamela here. Uh, We're equal opportunity here. Let me find my, my mark. God, I hate glasses. Okay. But uh, I say I feel I feel a little better. Like I said, um, made progress. I think with this cold, finally, I just like to get this over with. That's why I'm going to go to the doctor just to make sure that everything's where it's supposed to be and going well. But I want to thank you all. Tomorrow we will have a best of. I will not be live. I'll be in the chat room. It's like me to fill everything. But I will be in the chat room, so we can chat back and forth over on YouTube. But uh, thank you all tonight, and uh, again, be on the lookout, because things are going to start happening once I get my health in, in here. I'm going to start doing ex- those extra shows for fun, building Legos, the Light Bright, things like that. We're going to start doing, I'm going to start doing a lot of that for fun after hours. We'll call it, we'll call it California Haunts after hours, right? How original. So yeah, we'll be doing a lot of, we'll be quite, quite a bit of those, going out on location in different places with you guys, and, and doing that stuff. I, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to do and it's fun for you guys. So I'm going to let you go now and like I said if, if you like the show, share it with five people if you hate the show, share it with five of your enemies equal opportunity here and I appreciate each and every one of you for being here. Be, be sure to check the show out if you didn't see the whole show. Check it out on YouTube or Facebook or wherever you may watch from. I'd appreciate it. Okay guys, I will see you on the, in the chat tomorrow and then Friday I'll be live with Nancy Mads. So have a great evening.